everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities to just people who have great car stories. I'm Randy Cardoon. This week, joining us in studio, the host of the Great American Auto Scene, otherwise known as Gas, G-A-A-S, the myth, the legend himself, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Beck is in studio. Hello, Bob. Hello, Randy. Thank you for joining us. Been on your show before. Yes, you have. Welcome to the Talking About Cars building. This is great. I mean, you've got a you've got an elevator. I do. You don't have an elevator. No. We have to walk steps at your steps, place. Yeah, we get the exercise. <laughs> we do that all the time. Well, it's good to have steps, especially yes. if you have a Fitbit. Do you have your Fitbit on today? No, it's it's in my phone. Oh, I've, oh. Got, I've got that program in my phone. Oh, so it it catches my hip movement. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, these are things we never knew about you, Bob. Thank uh. you very much. I don't want to think about your hip movement. No, I don't either. All right, good. Just want to get that out. All right, now the reason I have Bob joining us, not only is his, he is he a witty conversationalist, but he's an NHRA guy. And our guest, as we get ready to start the, uh, wow, we're getting ready for another season, National Hot Rod Association. Our guest is Top Fuel's Leah Pritchett. Leah, yeah. thanks for joining us on the show. Of course, absolutely. Thanks, guys, for having me. Oh. You know, it, it has been quite a year for you, but what we always do, we like to start at the beginning. I want to talk about the first car that you remember growing up. What was the first car, not necessarily your first car, but the first car you remember somebody having growing up that you noticed? Oh, boy. Well, my uh, first of all, my dad was a land speed racer, so and, and my parents owned just a mom-and-pop alignment shop, so... I would say my very first memory uh, in a car, and it was one that my mom owned, was a 1964 and a half Mustang convertible manual, and uh, that thing was bad. I just, to this day, I think I'm a huge Dodge person, Mopar, uh, but I always have a little soft spot for Mustangs because when we would go and cruise on Route 66 in the Inland Empire, I mean, that was our jam. That's what we did. And uh, I guess right up behind that, apparently we like red. Uh, my dad had he had refurbished and restored a 1972 uh, De Tomaso Pantera. So I thought, I, I still to this day, he had to sell it eventually. But to this day, I want to find it it's somewhere in America. Really. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. That that actually sounds, that took care of two questions, by the way, in one, because I have another question that's, of all the cars you've had, and this may be a little different, of all the cars you've had that you may not have anymore, what's the one car you'd like to get back? I think it would be that one, because I had never, ever seen another Pantera in my life besides going to a couple meet and car shows, so to speak, in San Bernardino. But I think for sentimental reasons, I'd like that. And I, I think what's really cool is that I had my very first car ever was a 2001 Toyota Tacoma uh, extended cab because where I lived in Southern California, dude, you're an hour and a half from everything. The beach, the mountains, load up your dirt bikes, go riding. So those are all things I like to do and scrape together some coins, got that truck, drove it across the country when I moved back to this tropical Indianapolis. And, uh, <laughs> Tropical <laughs> Indianapolis. I like that. How many palm trees are in Indianapolis right now, Leah? <laughs> the, the fake one that's in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I still have that. And apparently along the way, it was like a shopping cart magnet. And uh, just last <laughs> last year, I got it totally, all the body work done. And it looks, it looks scary now. So since I still have my very first car... Uh, and I've had a couple in between. I think I'd like to get my my dad's Pantera back. So, and it was 
it was a car show champion of the world. I mean, everything, everything on it was polished. Even the underbody, tan, uh, everything was polished. And you know, you could see that you could see the motor through the front seat. Right. Um, yeah. clear, a clear cover for it. And so you just watch all the gears turn. You watch the belts and everything. So there can't be too many of them out there. I, I, I implore anybody that may be listening, if you think you've seen it, <laughs> please call into the show. Did, did he ever let you drive it? No, because he got rid of it when I was too young. I think I was 13, and he took my girlfriend and I to like some junior prom thing. We thought we were we thought we were the baddest things in town. Uh, <laughs> but he did take me a hundred. And 42 miles an hour when I was 12 years old on a back road. I remember it exactly because out in the country, right, there's nothing. And that was the very first taste of speed I ever got was him absolutely ripping it. And, of course, out of all cars that we would ever see would be a trooper going the opposite direction as we blow by at 120. So, right, my dad slams on the brakes and slows down, you know, nice and calmly. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, like that word. Slams on the brakes calmly, yeah. <laughs> he looks in the rearview mirror, and I'm, like, rubbernecking it, too, like, oh, my gosh, this is where you're at. I'm going to go to jail. My mom, like, my mom's going to be a single parent. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and that trooper just kind of just kind of went on, went on down the road. But other than that, my dad made sure I never, you know, street raced. Uh, if I ever street raced or got in trouble for street racing, we would never go real drag racing, which is my heart and my soul. And uh, so, you know, my dad kind of he instilled that need for speed in me. And then you, 20 years later, I've been racing for 20 years now. Um, I do all my racing on the track. I suddenly flashback that you were talking about that to the start of the Shirley Muldowney movie. Yeah, remember the one where her, her dad, I guess, is driving around in this Lincoln Forty One Lincoln or something, bouncing all over the roads, and she's hanging on for dear life. I guess he's letting her yeah. drive it or something like that. Steer, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, I, I keep getting the uh, you know he can't drive fifty five going through my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Or 155. It sounds yeah, more like really. it. Hey, Leah, you started racing at a very young age in junior dragsters. How did that help you with what you're doing? Oh, well, it, immensely. I mean, that's the root and the soul. You want to talk five horsepower, the Briggs and Stratton pull string on gas. That was it. Like top speed, maybe like 31 miles an hour. It took 16 seconds to get to the eighth mile. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's where I started. And it really comes from, so like I said, my dad was a land speed racer and he didn't have any boys. I'm sure there's a lot of dads out there and a lot of guys that are like so hung up on on having a boy, you think like, oh, I, I want to have a boy so I can do all this cool boy stuff, man stuff with. Well, of course, I think because my dad wanted that so bad, then, you know, the Lord gave him two girls. He's like, all right, you know, we can still do some motorsports. And at that time, the NHRA Junior Drag Racing League was just blossoming, starting up on the West Coast. So we would take that 1978 dirt yellow Ford pickup and put the junior dragsters in the back of it, go to Pomona, go to some rundown, like, Rialto Raceway Airport where you're trying to, like, dodge between where, like, is the plane going to land? Can we make a run? Or is the plane going to take off? <laughs> we, we would lay down our own timing equipment. Like, that's part of the game plan. You, you want to race? you got to set up your own tree, lay down the timing equipment, sell your own snacks to your own people. And uh, so that, that played a huge part. And then what the NHRA does is it, it grows it. It goes nationwide, and so just like in little league or in other sports, you become what good in your regions, and then you get to go national. Well, 
we had to qualify to go national, and we started to do that. So as a young kid at 12, 13 years old, when everybody's all hyped on, I don't know, like going to the movies or in, in their normal sports at school, I was the one dipping out, you know, at the last class to go drive 500 miles or 700 miles and try and be back, you know, by Monday morning. And it, then it got a little bit bigger in the summer where we would drive all the way across country and back into Canada. And I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life for a living. Like, how do you, like, how do you become like a professional race car driver? It's not, it's not a book for that. So, and we don't have, we didn't have any money besides just what normal middle-class people had. So as I got into high school, I started focusing my efforts on what can I do in college that's going to help me become a professional race car driver. And there's, there's really two paths from what I thought. Pursue engineering and really dig deep into the mechanics and technology and, and, and mathematics of the race cars and, you know, network your way in. Or, because this is a very expensive sport, it's millions of dollars, of ye- millions of dollars a year to do it, That I don't have that money, but there's some large corporations out there that can speak to a lot of people. I'm going to learn how to tell their message. So I pursued marketing and communications and Fast forward, I think it's been 10 years now since I've graduated college um, to where I consider now I represent some of the largest companies in the world. Papa John's, Pennzoil, Shell, um, Dodge, Mopar, FireAid. So all of them have enabled me to get to the point where I'm at, which is being a professional race car driver for Don Schumacher Racing. Well, one of the things we were thinking about before you got on here was how is it you, you've been an excellent driver you were a top junior dragster driver in the days you progressed to where you are now but it wasn't just your driving skills that got you there and you just answered pretty much uh for a youngster or someone else trying to get into the sport it's not just your driving skills is it no it's not and there was a small hiatus that i took as well between going to college uh, driving other people's cars and, and you know raising the funds to be able to pay for the nitro, the fuel, the oil, potentially the catastrophic parts that we'd leave on the ground. Um, <laughs> I had got, I'd got to a breaking point in 2010 where I thought, I mean, everything was ripped, ready to go to, to be in the, in, the normal, in the normal world. I was like, I had a backup plan to be a marketing uh, agent for a large company. And, you know, resumes are out to L.A. and, and all of that good stuff. And I had an opportunity because I put it out there. This is what I want to do. Uh, Roger Burgess, who owned a pro mod team and a funny car team at the time, was looking for a female pro mod driver. And my racing, my, my skill set behind the wheel had got me that opportunity. But I'm going to tell you what right now, if anybody is listening that does not know what a pro mod is, that is one of the fiercest, most difficult race cars to drive, I think, on planet Earth. They're short wheelbase, suspension base. They go 270 miles an hour in the quarter, and they are very, I would like to use the word unstable and sensitive. To dr- they flip just, on their lips. Just a little, yeah. <laughs> wow. So here I am with this opportunity, and I'm like, this is, this is my calling right here. I'm going to take it and run with it, packed up my stuff in California, moved out on my own, lived in Atlanta, worked with that, that team and honed my driving skill set there. But again, it always came down to the dollars, making those cars run. So I was able to, you know, just like anybody, look at your network base. What, what do you have to work with? And uh, what can you do for somebody else? That's the mindset you always have to have. Even though you're intrinsic with yourself, I want to race a race car, and that's fine. It's all about me and whoever may want to do that. But you think about 
what can you do for someone else or, or sacrifice or, or give value to. So um, right before that, there was, so I take it back a step, there was a full year where I only drove maybe two or three times an entire season, some random cars, some random nostalgia cars, and I was a crew member doing the clutch on a Nitro Fun car because I knew that's what it would take. I, I toured the country, drove the, the guy's motor home around, set up the pit, worked on the car, drove to the next place. Um, and that's, I wanted to do that because the clutch is really the heartthrob. It's, I don't want to say necessarily the brains of the operation, but a lot of the finesse of making nitro cars go down the track happen within the clutch. And I thought there's no better way than to learn and you do it yourself. So that's, uh, that's what I love. And to this day, those, that year that I had being the main clutch, was it helps me with uh, with my team and the conversations I have with relaying information back to my crew chief. So, how old were you when you were driving the motor home again? <laughs> I think I was I was twenty one. I was twenty one at that time. Yeah, I had twenty twenty one. I'm sure I wasn't on the insurance. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Your race driver driving. Yeah, yeah, no insurance. No, but that would have been quite a ride, actually. Uh, if she yeah. used what she learned before to ride in a motor home, now that would have been interesting. I mean, it, on fire going from Sonoma to Seattle. Wait a minute. How did that happen? Well, drag racers are quite capable of disassembling their vehicles while in motion, and you've taken that over to, you transferred that to the street vehicles, too. Yeah, apparently <laughs> did a job of that. It was, we're, we're, there was an oil leak in the generator like all weekend long, and somebody had JB welded it and just trying to get it by, and the generator kept was still running, and I think when we were going down the road, and when we had stopped, we had found that it was actually, I mean, we were probably 10, 15 minutes away from, you know, being on the CBS News. Um, <laughs> so you were basically a uh, circus show at that point, the flaming car going down the street. Is that was it? That was that was us. Those are, man, I, I mean, I love your guys' show, and, and you share so many stories, and I think think there's sometimes a little bit of disconnect between you look at a professional racer and we really do have our stuff together because that's what it takes what we do is very serious right 330 miles an hour we're dealing with nitro methane these are explosive engines at times and safety is a big thing so we have to be serious but all of us come from not all of us some of us come from places that are just like everybody else and have stories um you know that are just like everybody else up and down the road. Now, when you say that not everybody does that, there wasn't anybody you had in mind that doesn't come from something like that, is there? Oh, no. No, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I just, I, I didn't know if maybe somebody had just been in the top of your head that maybe had come to mind and you thought, well, no, they didn't do that. Yeah, time to diss them now. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> uh, hey, talk we all come from different experiences and uh, we, we can't trade them and we, we can't change where we're from, the family we're, we're, you know, we're born into. So that we, you know, we just have to respect each other because at the end of the day, no matter who we line up against, my race car does not care who's in that other lane. Well played. When you line up on the track, who is it that you think you've got the biggest rivalry with? Hmm. Oh, that, that's a... If you asked me that about six months ago, I would have said Steve Torrance because we had we had a little thing going on in the middle of the season, which started out all fun and games. He has 
you know, had a couple play-ons with my words, calling me a gold digger, which, <laughs> which is fine if you guys know what a digger is. A digger is a nostalgia term for a dragster. My car is gold because of Papa John's Camaro gold. So, yeah, I'm driving a gold digger. Yeah, but, yeah, we knew that. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was absolutely what we thought. That's exactly what popped in your mind. Exactly, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing on that, by the way. Uh, and he thought he had better ingredients, but we've got the Papa John sauce over here. So it was all fun and games. But today, no, she doesn't put the tomato no, sauce no, in the gas no, tank, no, for no. those of you who are listening. Go no. ahead. But today is a new day, and it's a new year, and there's nothing better than wanting to face off and defeat a reigning world champion, which would be Brittany Force, the other female on Top Fuel. So not only have we had a very healthy, friendly-ish rivalry, being the only two females very close in age, and very different upbringings, but I think it makes it even better now that we came out like gangbusters last year in 2017. We won three to five races for total, set national records twice, but uh, their team ended up on top at the end of the year winning the championship. So as we come out to a new season of 2018, which kicks off at Pomona, as she, you know, she's the one that's got that huge target, and it's not like that target's never been there for me with her. It's just bigger than ever, and I think that's cool. That's what that's what gets our blood pumping. We don't race just to put a wind light on for ourselves, man. We race to be the fastest person of the entire day, of the entire event. The fastest car, the fastest person. That's what drag racing is all about. Leah, you had such a crazy 2016 with the Bob Vandegrift situation and that falling apart and then finding your way on to uh, other race teams by hook or by, well, not by crook, but you get the idea. Well, I had to come up with something and it rhymed. So, uh, (laughs) but you you were basically just hanging in there to survive. You finally get a stable situation in 2017 with Schumacher and then just take off like gangbusters. What were you thinking going into that first year, first race, Winter Nationals a year ago, that you'd have the kind of year you did? It's, I, I wish I could say, you know, we, we headed out to Phoenix Test and we headed out to Pomona, and those were our expectations. I can't say that it necessarily was. We, we knew our capabilities, and let me tell you, there is a certain level of expectation, and, and people say, you know, with Don Schumacher, you know, he expects to win. I've been in this building now for 20 months, and I can see why, right? Off the chassis that we, when I say we, the company, build and the manufacturing and the technology and the money that goes into it, well, yeah, if if you have all the resources, you should expect to win. Well, coming off of 2016 where I was in seven different cars with three different teams, didn't get to make a full season, but we made it in the top 10, and it was, I mean, it was such a scramble to make it happen to now be in a position with the proper funding going, now here's everything you've ever dreamed for, now you must deliver. That was a rise to the occasion type of expectation. But I'd be lying if I didn't say, you know, the first two races right out of the gate when I'd only won one in my entire life before that, was it was a confidence booster for sure, but it also made it difficult in the middle of the season. We knew it was coming. If you're going to peak, really high in the beginning there's only one there's a, there's a couple ways to go but the difficult thing was to maintain that all year long and you know we had some issues in the in at the end of the season with some parts that we have figured out now but compared january like right now i'm sitting in the parking lot in my dodge Hellcat 
Hellcat. Uh, Hellcat. Yeah. Oh, nice, quiet, nice. sedan car. Hey, it's okay. I have an RT, so it's like I, I know I know that the seats are comfortable, and I know they can push <laughs> you back in the seats. Go ahead. <laughs> I just picked up five of my driving suits this year because we have five different primary sponsors. And how it's different than last year was I think we were so pumped and excited that we were actually doing it. We were doing the thing. We were going to race a full season. My guys and I, we actually had jobs. And our dreams are coming true, and we're going to make this thing happen. So where this year, that is still the same, except we're in the refining process. We are now into the the detailing. So I think that's what we lacked at the end of last season. So all that we have right now is more horsepower, I think, literally and figuratively, than we had last year. So the confidence is there. I've, we had a, I've had an awakening for sure. I've only had one full season under my belt. Know what it takes now, uh, but that doesn't take anything away from the competition. So it's uh, I can't wait to get out of tropical Indianapolis, let me tell you. <laughs> well, let's add a little perspective of this as you sit in your uh, Dodge um, Hellcat. Hellcat yeah. Yes, Hellcat. What were you driving this time last year? I was also in the same Dodge Hellcat. Oh, you so, were. So this is actually yours. This isn't like a promo that they give you for the they do lease for a year or something like that. No. Okay. So I'll I'll be real with you guys. I was I got a phone call in 2016. As soon as I got to Schumacher Racing, I had a small relationship with Dodge before, and it and it grew when I got with Schumacher. And they said, you know, hey, we'd like to send Leah Hellcat to get acquainted with. I was like, acquainted with. Well, let me write that That's down. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That sounds like fun. There's two stories in one here. So it gets dropped off at DSR. No paperwork, no nothing. And my crew guys and I are like, this thing's bad. Let's go. So we we go to, obviously, a non-public street, private property. And we're dealing, you know, we're looking at at all the SRT gauges and cluster and all track mode, sport mode, and custom and trans and all this. Like, what's going to do the best burnout? So we rip all these burnouts and do all these donuts. And this is on our lunch break. And we wow! Come back, come back to the shop. I mean, we're talking. We're cram, cramming like five, six guys in this in this char, in this challenger, and they're like, "Oh, here's that paperwork, you know, that you need to sign. You know, where you're not going to do any of that." So, <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So I have this, I have this car for a month, and then I was able to be presented with the opportunity to be a part of the Dodge Demon development, and that's why they had let me be acquainted with really the challengers so to speak uh because same similar body style sure so for the last 20 months i have been able to be a part of the test sessions the development breaking the record so that that 965 we ran in gainesville i was the one driving it and to keep that a secret for pretty much almost a year i mean i'd fly out of indy and barely be able to tell my husband where i'm going because he's test sessions were so top secret <laughs> yeah. yeah wow and and to social media you are, are you a social media type or you immediately want to sit there and write hey wait a minute this is what i did and you know well the so the second part of that story is when they first gave me that that it was a it was a media car a media dodge uh hellcat that i made a bunch of videos they didn't you know they didn't ask me to do anything i just i'm having fun doing my thing on on the street making videos pushing it out there well dodge liked that and i was able to hold on to the car and so every time they every time i get a call from pontiac michigan or detroit i thought it was them calling me being like okay you know your your lease is up you got to give it back but 
I've I've learned I've I love this car. If I ever have to give it back and if it ever has to go to auction, I'm gonna buy it. I mean I've grown attached to it. It's my daily driver. I drive it in the snow, in the in the ice. It's snowing at this very moment. Um I I absolutely love it. It's snowing tropical snowing in, in tropical in, Indiana. Yeah. In tropical Indiana <laughs> yeah. and it's snowing. Okay. Yeah. Hey, on, on, on another note, you talked about your great start, and we know you had a great start, and you, you pretty much maintained through the season. But after you do all you can through the regular season, now you got to go into the chase. What's your What's your feeling on that? The chase is always going to have. There's always going to be an opinion about it. Most of it's going to be negative because. There's only one winner, so the the positive is going to be on that side. However, even going into it, I'd say midway through that chase, there were three really, really strong cars, and that was our own Steve Torrance's and our teammate Antron Brown from Matco Tools. And we won the majority of the races, and by a long shot, all three of us would have been top three no matter what. But the sport thrives on the fans, and that's, what we do it for that's how we do it and if the countdown is necessary to make it interesting and the our month or our season is 10 months long that's a long season you're going to have a, a runaway champion 3 months before the end of the season that's really not healthy for the overall you know goodness of the sport so you have to take a step back and go no matter what game no matter what point structure you're given that's the way that it is and you have to learn to play that and that that translates into crew chiefs, into driving, into parts, into inventory, knowing that, all right, you may have some better clutch levers, you may have some better clutch discs that you only you only have a certain inventory of. Well, you're not going to blow through those in the middle of the hot season when those points don't really count. You're going to save those bad boys up for the end of the season. So it's very strategic, and as a driver... I thought, I mean, I truly thought that I was at my best capability. I don't think I could have been any more focused. I don't think I could have wanted it anymore. I, I'm i still learning right now, what do I do differently in the 2018 chase, you know, knock on wood, that our team is there, uh, to, to do an even better job. And the one thing that I have come to terms with and worked on in the three months of off season is honestly better health. I'm, I don't say that I'm, I'm definitely not in in bad condition by any means i'm 5'9 and 130 pounds but if i can i've worked with some trainers that work with football not like pro football players but athletes that work on their hand eye hand foot coordination uh in in ways that i think are going to help me inside the race car and i've stayed dedicated to that for the last couple of months and we're going to see this year how much that you know how much that helps interesting so what you're saying is there are applications that let's say, NFL players use that would apply to what you do in the cockpit, so to speak, in, in, uh, behind the wheel? I would say absolutely. And breathing has a lot to do with it. I used to think it didn't. I, so many drivers will tell you whether they're lying to you or not. Who knows, right? Another competitor. They'll tell you what they do if they get hyped up. I know a driver that sings a song in his head when he stages so that he's not thinking about anything. Really? Uh, some people that get mad and angry, some that, whoo, you know, they woo-saw. And I've always thought that I know exactly what I'm good at. But I've I've learned to open up and try different things because I need to. Just because I was good, I was good at the way I was doing things before doesn't mean that I can't change and be even better. So those, but I'm really not going to know until I get in the race car, which is exactly 
seven days from now. <laughs> you're not, not that you're looking ahead or anything. Yeah, yeah you're not, you're not yeah. watching this closely, are you? So if you were going to run a song through your head, what song would that be? Oh, All I Do Is Win. I think that's by DJ Khaled. Nice. Nice. Hey, Lee, I got a question for you. We're losing two tracks. We've lost Rocky Mountain. We're losing an East Coast track now. Rocky Mountain will at least stay in for another year. But how do we motivate people to come out to drag racing? How do we motivate them to become interested? Now, you you definitely have been interested since you were a child because you got immersed in automobile performance. But today, a lot of the kids are not involved in that. How do we bring them into that to help build on what you've already been And able to get do? them off those damn cell phones, mm, damn yeah. it! So I no tell te- you! No texting, but driving, yeah. <laughs> How do we get them to do that? I know uh, there's a lot of things that people are saying, but you're behind the wheel. You're immersed in this. How do we get the fans to the track? That's a wonderful question. I'll tell you what, if I had the right answer, I'd be a lot richer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's it's going to take a little bit more personality on the driver's part. It's going to take us coming out of our corporate shells, so to speak, which is very difficult to do because those are the ones that pay the bills. But ultimately, we need not only action on the track, but action between people. We are competing, like you said, with the you know the phones that are in their hand and they're watching all this action. And I think our number one goal is to let people know and for them to understand that it is a full event. I don't think people realize that not only are they watching the cars go down the track, but they get to meet the drivers and they get to watch the cars get torn apart and the motors and they get to see carnage and they can even take some of it home. And it's, you know, people get so excited about going to a concert because they know that they're going to, all their senses are going to be touched in every, you know, whatever they're smelling but they can hear it and and you know when you go if you go to a concert you see all these phones out right and everyone's taking photos and videos when you go and you watch it on your phone later you go to post it it really doesn't look that cool that that sensory experience doesn't translate through that phone and i think it's our job somehow to get the people to the track to understand that the experience you're going to have at the track is going to blow every concert out of the water and it's a place for you and your friends and not just you and your guy friends for you and your, your girlfriends and your kids. Then there's a midway and it's an entire day's event. So how do we get them there? It's going to take more. It's going to take more track promotions. I think we're on the right path with our TV broadcast productions. I, I think we're going in that right direction. And ultimately the drivers and the NHRA have got to kick up our digital presence a lot. We need to be able to, we need to be harnessing, you know, more, uh, more partners that are in the digital space. One thing that has happened, which I'm very proud of of the NHRA, is coming this season, we are able to, we are able to show footage from the starting line. We've never been able to do that before. You are not allowed to, a team member, crew was never allowed to, to put anything on the internet of, you know, from a phone of what happened on the racetrack. Everybody relied on the on the sports bro- on the Fox Sports broadcast to see it mm-hmm. because they want people to tune in, and I get that. We want ratings. Ratings bring sponsors. Sponsors bring more races. We can all race, but you can't get somebody to go to the racetrack and see the racing if they don't even know it exists. Half the time, you probably find out what's happening around you is because of 
some little failed video or something on Instagram that sparked your interest because it probably got passed down a hundred channels before it got to you. That's what we need. Our sport is so live and entertaining and extravagant that we're capable of, of, of capturing attention in that small amount of time. But until now, we weren't able to really share those digital assets. So I think you'll see a change come 2018. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Leah, one thing we've heard already just from talking to you today is is this you really are zeroed in the spirit you have behind what you want to do. I'm curious about uh, when you had all those problems in 2016 and suddenly found yourself without a ride and you actually went out and there's an article in the Indianapolis Star that talked about how you were so determined to get uh, somebody to help you get back on the track that had kind of interfered with your marriage a little bit. How did you know exactly what to do to get yourself back into things? Because people people have problems. All our listeners have problems with whatever they have going through, but then they're kind of frozen. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to get back into it. You seem to, at least according to the article and some of the stuff I've read about you, you seem to just focus in on that one thing and, and knew what to do. Where did that come from? Well, I definitely don't think I, I knew what to do by, by any means, but I knew that I had to do something and a lot of it. So in, in this particular form, I, definitely down and out. I mean, we went from the penthouse to the outhouse in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> we went a race, and we got a full team to now all – 20 of us are unemployed in an industry that only hires in December, and this was April. So when I, when I talk about the, the unselfishness type of perspective, that day it was cold just like it is right now, and it was snowing just like it is right now, and I thought, there ain't no way. There ain't no way that this one person's decision is going to ruin our chances at a championship. And I say our I met our team. I mean, my guys are talking about how they were going to feed their kids that month and their families. And I was so disgusted. And I mean, even myself, I'm, I was out of a job. And luckily, my husband works for another team. And, you know, we'd, we'd still be able to pay the mortgage. But I'm like, the fire inside of me, Matt was so pissed off that it matched the fire inside of me to race. And nothing had ever matched that before. You know when you want something really, really bad, and mm-hmm. I've showcased that for a long time, and whether it may be, you know, someone's searching for a job or, or that next idea, and they ha- that fire is always there. Well, when there's a, that other fire that's in the exact yin-yang of it, I mean, then that just created, there was no option. I was more, I was just as afraid of, of losing everything I'd worked for as much as I had wanted it, and I threw it out there. Started th- I started thinking about, okay, networking. I've got this fantastic Shell relationship, Shell Oil Company, uh, who is more than just Shell. I mean, they're in renewable resources. And I thought, well, they have jet fuel. Well, Connie Coletta, he, he has basically the largest contract with, uh, with one of the freight carriers. Right. And I know he runs a lot of fuel. Well, let me check in with all these SBOs and see what his contract is. And even Connie Coletta was willing to help me i was trying to save him money and i'm talking like tenths of a cent per gallon of jet fuel this is a world i don't live in but i made myself educated on it to find an opportunity to create a budget to put me in a car now did it work no that avenue didn't work but as i was as i was putting that iron in the fire i was also putting the iron with fire aid 
who this is where I think applies to everybody is that when you have confidence in yourself, I'm not saying like you absolutely know you can do it, but you know that you can put a thousand percent in other people want to be a part of that. And that's when Ron Thames with fire aid, which is a fire extinguisher, fire suppressant, fire suppression company that also got dropped on his head. He was with me at Vandergrift. And as the team got dropped, he as a sponsor lost a bunch of money. His race car is no longer on the track and that money is gone. So I felt indebted to him too. Like, man, this guy has all these plans for his for his vendors and his suppliers in, in his hometown race, Atlanta, and now he's got no race car. We're going to make this thing happen. Well, FireAid was able to team up with Schumacher. We were able to get him some new accounts. You can go and buy your FireAid at Napa. All these things from a business perspective work together that at the end of the day generate some additional dollars that can put us on the racetrack. So it's thinking about what you can do for somebody else while you're trying to accomplish your own goals. Because if you're just thinking about yourself, you're just going to spin your wheels. Wow, that's uh, that's very motivational. Insight- that's insightful, a lot. Yeah, that's very insightful. All right, I just a couple of quick questions here because you've been great with us today, and we want to ask you a couple of quick questions about the uh, race, uh, the season coming up. But um, one of the questions we always ask people: assuming money is no object, what are the Top three cars on the Leah Pritchett, I want that car someday list. You mentioned uh, the, Pan- the Pantera. So what what other cars is there? Oh, man. You, ah, I don't, honestly, I don't ever even let myself think about that. <laughs> oh, everybody has a list. You mind, you're sitting down, you're reading or something like that, and you're, you, there's like, man, I'd love one of those one day, or yeah, you see you, something. Yeah, you're thumbing through Hot Rod Magazine or National Dragster. What is it you want? Well, that okay. So the number one, the number top, the top number one one, what is the demon? And the reason I don't have one or I don't have one on order is because I mean, anybody that you, I don't, I didn't have the money to be able to buy one and get one on one of those lists. So even though I spent a lot of time with them, the Dodge Demon is what is what I would want. Someday I'll own one. And number two would be the Pantera. And number three. Man, number three, you guys really stumped me. Uh, you know what? I want it. I want like a top fifty-seven rat rod. I don't. From let's see, uh, I've got. I've got them. They're littered all over my. Uh, all uh, over my Instagram. A fifty-seven rat rod. Yeah. What kind of rat rod would it be? What a Chevy or? A... I don't. Know. I know. I'm thinking more like a a Ford thirty-two. That's just absolutely uh, okay. Oh, okay. Right, so you want a real? You want a? You want a cool '30s vintage rat rod? All right. You know you're gonna. Ha- yeah. You know we're gonna have to get you out to one of the one of the shows here when you're back in Southern California because we we can definitely get you to, get you close to them. Oh, just tease her now. Tease why don't her. you? Yeah, you don't want to do, do that. that. No, yeah, you gotta. You can come out to Irwindale. We'll we'll show you something. <laughs> well, I do want to put it out there real quick though. I am on a mild hunt right now for a 1965 uh, Thunderbird for somewhat of a project car that i'm looking at mopar came out with their crate motors and so i want to be able to you know do a mopar swap in that and just in all my off time right but my my dad wait a minute wait a minute you want to put a a mopar Mopar. crate motor in a 65 thunderbird you see i can't even get the words out yeah, I think that'd be sick. <laughs> <laughs> you realize what yeah. mess that would be if you ever came to like the uh, Spring Fling. I I yeah, uh, the Mopar, I MC yeah. the Spring Fling every yeah. year. So we've had guy. There's a guy that actually came out with a um, what was it? I think it was like a '58 Ranchero, but mm-hmm. it had a, a Chrysler engine in it. it. Yeah, 
and we didn't know what to do with it. What category do you put that thing in? Well, it's like when I showed up with my with my Plymouth. Where do you put a Plymouth with a Chevy in it? Yeah, exactly. He's got a Plymouth with a Chevy in it. Cats and dogs living together. What is going on here? Why a Thunderbird? Basically because my dad was running a 1988 Ford Thunderbird at Bonneville. And I've always been drawn to the 65. Now, there's there's a lot of models in years that I'm not a super fan of. But I haven't seen a lot of them in person. And I've wanted something a little bit different and you know, I'm not sure exactly what I what I'm going to do with it. Be more or less a cruiser. I mean, you could put it on. It could be on bags. It could just be a complete chameleon. But a Thunderbird, uh, a Thunderbird speaks to me. That year speaks to me. Um, I'm a little bit Cherokee Indian. You know, Thunderbird has a very large presence within the Native American culture, and uh, I think it all ties together for me. So someday, someday, I'm gonna I'll get that building. But I. Guarantee you it won't happen in the 2018 season. <laughs> no, okay. Well, a Cooper Roadster. Uh, I'm going to go with a Coop. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Air conditioning works better than those. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, who's the most famous person in your phone number list on your cell phone? Papa John. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. Well played. Yeah, go, very yeah. good. I like that. Well played. Well played. Give me a little preview of the coming season. Alexis DeJoria out this year. Uh, who are you expecting to really be challenged by this season? Of course, you mentioned Brittany. You've also mentioned Steve Torrance. Your feelings going into the big race out at uh, Pomona here in a couple weeks? I think one of the challengers that's really going to rise above what they did last year is going to be Tony Schumacher with uh, Neff coming over being the new crew chief. And I know that a lot of their parts, are very similar, even more similar to my team's parts, and that's that's what a teammate is there for. Our our combination has worked very well, and they have pretty much mirrored it. So basically, I feel like I'm going to be running against a duplicate of my own car with Tony Schumacher driving, which is a you know that's a force to be reckoned with. So I think Tony's definitely going to come up and be more of a threat. And Clay Milliken, I mean, you know, as a single car team out there. He currently holds and stole the world record from us. <laughs> E.T. got his first win, which is also against us in Bristol, and he's just been he's been hot to trot. So, you know, once that fire gets going, it, it, it definitely burns, and you know his is gonna be lit for a while. So I think definitely Clay, Brittany, Steve. You can't ever you know count any of the Coletta cars out. They're always there, but it's going to be. It's going to be the exact same, if not more intense, competition than uh, than the fans have ever seen. And hopefully, you're going to, you'll see you know some more personalities come out. All right, you've got a four car team basically under Schumacher for Top Fuel. Have, and no, in Top Fuel we actually only have three, so we categorize ourselves of one, two, and four. Oh, one, two. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, so you got, you've got a pretty strong presence in Top Fuel Racing as a team. How does that affect the uh, the other drivers? I don't know, man. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> I <laughs> no. Do you mean a uh, DSR teams or yeah, in... DSR team? You, you, DSR is a, a driving force in top fuel racing, whether it's right. funny car or top fuel dragster. That has got to be an intimidating factor. You know, I I don't I don't get that vibe from them at all. For one. Uh, Tony has always helped me in driving when I was driving for independent teams before. Always open and very willing to help. And I think that they really, when I when I came on into Schumacher as a team member, 
there, yeah, there might have been, it was bad timing. We were having to take parts from their teams, their spare parts to create ours in the middle of the season. So that made it difficult on their team members. But I can say that I don't think I'd really want any other teammates than Antron and Tony. Those are multi-world champions, and they are as open as as anything. I mean, from re- not only me reaching out to them and, you know, showing me their cockpits and we go through you know, racing procedures and we talk about our competition together to calling me and making sure, you know, how I'm doing, what, you know, what do we got, who do we want to focus on this year. Our goal, which I think is so cool, is for us to be the top three. And it's not, and it's not just a saying, like, oh, we want the Schumacher, all three of them up there. No, we work together day in and day out at the shop. And you want nothing but your teammates to succeed with you. And they have, in all honesty, made me feel that way so animosity i mean maybe for like those 3.6 something seconds on the track but other than that uh, we work too damn hard not to want to see our teammates excel okay leah so you're coming back to california southern california from snow ridden palm tree in your backyard <laughs> in sunny well maybe not sunny, sunny yeah. indianapolis when you get back in town what's the first thing you're going to do what's the first thing you're going to catch up with when I get back to Southern California, right? Oh man, well, I'm gonna go to Rosa Maria's and get my bean and cheese burrito that I do every time. <laughs> <laughs> there is, oh, we are we are lacking for authentic Mexican food up here in Indiana. So, you name it, man, I'm gonna be at Rosa Maria's or Cuca's in Redlands, anywhere in the Inland Empire, catching me a good bean and cheese burrito. That's for sure. NHRA top fuel driver Leah Pritchett. The Winter Nationals coming to Pomona February 8th through the 11th. Thanks for listening here on Radio.com and iTunes. Don't forget to check out all of our podcasts here on Radio.com, as well as our Talking About Cars Classic podcasts. Yeah, numbers 1 through 93. You can uh, hear them also on iTunes and also on SoundCloud. Our website is TalkingAboutCars.net. Big thanks to Bob Beck from great american auto scene for joining me in this one until next time i'm randy crudoon join me as we have some fun talking about cars